The Old Testament reading for today is Psalm 103. The New Testament reading is Luke 8, 40 through 48. Old Testament reading, Psalm 103. New Testament, Luke 8, 40 through 48. Hear now the reading of God's holy word. Psalm 103 of David. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, So the Lord shows compassion to those who fear Him. For He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it it, and it is gone. And its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him. And His righteousness to children's children to those who keep his covenant, and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in heaven, in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word. Obey the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Let us go now to the New Testament reading, which is Luke 8. We will look at verses 40 through 48. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about twelve years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for twelve years, and though she spent all of her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, The crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. This is now the reading of God's holy word. May he add his blessing to the preaching of it this morning. From time to time, I think it is important to step back from the small individual passages of Scripture that we are 
looking at to consider the big picture of the book we are studying. And this past week, I did take some time to read through the Gospel of Luke again from beginning to end in one setting. It was a very helpful thing to do because I was reminded of Luke's stated purpose for writing. I was also able to see the structure of his Gospel and his method. We've been moving rather methodically through this book, taking one section per sermon, Lord's Day by Lord's Day. But we must not get lost in the details, for there is a big story that is being told in this gospel. There is a main message that is being communicated. Luke had an objective for writing this gospel, remember. He tells us in the opening verse that he, like others before him, compiled a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. That word accomplished is important. It indicates that Luke viewed the life and work of Christ as fulfilling prophecies and promises previously made. And he compiled this narrative, which he also calls an orderly account, so that Theophilus and all who love God with him would have certainty concerning the things that they have been taught. So then the purpose of the Gospel of Luke is to convince us that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah promised from long ago. He wants his audience to be convinced of this. He wants us to have certainty regarding Jesus Christ and the good news of salvation through faith in Him. The structure of this book is wonderful. I'm not going to bore you with very many details uh, this morning. In general, I want to remind you that Luke provides us with a lot of material surrounding Jesus' birth from 1.5 through 2.21 of his gospel. There he weaves together stories about the births of two men, John the Baptist and Jesus. Both births were miraculous, but Jesus' was like no other, for he was born to a virgin. And I would encourage you to read that narrative this week as we prepare to celebrate the Christmas holiday. Luke 2, 22-352 is also very interesting, for it contains stories about Jesus' infancy and childhood. And the thing that I wish to remind you of this morning is that in all of these stories surrounding Jesus' birth, infancy, and, and even youth, Important things are said by others concerning Him. Do not forget that angels testify concerning His unique identity and mission, and godly men and women testify concerning Him too. And I do love this introductory section of Luke's Gospel. Here Christ is presented to us in such a way that our expectations concerning Him are built up very high when we pay careful attention to the words that the angel Gabriel spoke to Zechariah concerning his son, John, and to Mary regarding her son, Jesus. And when we consider Elizabeth's words to Mary and the words of Mary's song of praise, and when we consider Zechariah's prophecy when his son, John, was born, and what the angels said to the shepherds in the field when Jesus was born, our expectations concerning Jesus are built up very high. Clearly, this is no ordinary child. This is no ordinary baby, but one who is born in fulfillment to promises previously made, and we are to expect great things of him. He is the Messiah, the Savior, Redeemer, and King who was promised to God's people long before. I want to read one small text for you to help jog your memory Joseph and Mary took Jesus to the temple 
when he was an infant to present him to the Lord in obedience to the law of Moses. And once there, a godly man named Simeon took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And do not forget, there was also a prophetess. Her name was Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping and fasting in prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to, who were wait, to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. I read this text to you just as one example of things that were said about Jesus by others in his infancy, his early childhood, even his youth. Angels testify to the utter uniqueness of this one. Also, godly men and women spoke, being filled with the Holy Spirit as they laid their eyes on Jesus. They knew that he was the one. And I remind you of this portion of Luke's gospel for two reasons. I do wish to encourage you to return to this section of Scripture in your own Bible reading this week as we enjoy the Christmas season. It's good for us to reflect on the birth of Christ, friends. It is a good tradition. It's good for us to think about the incarnation of the eternal Son of God. But as we do, we must be careful to consider the birth of Christ and the baby Jesus lying in a manger according to the Scriptures. Who is this Jesus and why was He born These are very important questions for us to ask, but they are often neglected by those who love to celebrate Christmas. And you will not find answers to these questions, who is Jesus and why was He born, by looking at a manger scene, will you? But you will find the answers to these questions in the Word of God. The Gospel of Luke answers these questions. He begins to answer the questions, who is this Jesus and why was He born, in the opening chapters by presenting Him as the fulfillment of promises and prophecies given long before, but it is the remainder of his gospel, particularly chapters 3 through 9, that Luke demonstrates that Jesus is the promised Messiah. And how does Luke demonstrate this? He does so by reporting on the many miracles that Jesus performed. I'd like to remind you of Luke 4, 18 through 20 also this morning. At the very beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry, He stood up in the synagogue on the Sabbath day in his hometown of Nazareth and read a portion of Scripture from Isaiah chapter 61, saying, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then Jesus rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. And all the eyes, the, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him, the text says. Why were they fixed upon him? Because this was a strange thing that he did. He didn't teach on this text. He didn't talk about looking forward to this coming Messiah. He just read these words as if they were his own words, as if this text was about him. 
and he sat down. And so at this moment, Jesus claimed to be the anointed one. He claimed to be the Messiah of whom Isaiah spoke. And the purpose of his coming was also stated. Hear it again. He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And what have we been witnessing in Luke's narrative from 421 onward, except a demonstration that these things were true of Jesus? I want you to see this, brothers and sisters. Anyone can read Isaiah 61 and make the claim that the prophecy is about them. There have been many false messiahs, I suppose, who have done that very thing. Anyone can stand up in front of a group of people, read a passage like Isaiah 61, and then sit down to make the claim that they are the Messiah. Jesus did this, but notice He also proved that He was this anointed one, this Messiah, by His preaching and especially by His miracles. And Luke wants us to see it. He is reporting these things to us in his gospel because he wants to demonstrate that indeed Jesus did not only talk about being the Messiah, he demonstrated himself to be the Messiah through his words and through his works. Do not forget that Christ did proclaim good news to the poor. In Luke 4.43 we hear him say, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And so he went from town to town amongst the poor, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. And in Luke 6:20 through 21, we learn that Christ in his sermon on the plain lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, "Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh." Christ pro- proclaimed good news to the poor in spirit in fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah 61. And he also set captives free. This he did in a spiritual sense, and is seen in the many accounts of Jesus freeing men and women from the bondage of demon possession. Have you noticed how many references there are to Jesus casting out demons in the Gospel of Luke? Well, uh, this is a demonstration of the fact that Christ, as God's anointed one, does have the ability to set captives free in the most profound way. In Luke 4, 31-37, we find a story of Christ healing a man with an unclean demon. In Luke 8, 1, we read, He went on through cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with Him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. And do not forget the incredible story that we considered not long ago regarding the casting out of a legion of demons from the man in the Gerasenes. Uh, that story is told in Luke 8, 26-39. And so here I am drawing your attention to the fact that Isaiah 61 foretold that the Messiah, or Anointed One, would set captives free when He came. And Jesus did this. He did this in a greater way than many expected. He did not merely set prisoners free from jail, but He set, set captives free from from captivity, bondage, and oppression to the evil one himself. He set captives free spiritually from bondage to the evil one. Jesus also gave sight to the blind. 
just as Isaiah 61 said that he would. I'm sure you remember the story where the disciples of John the Baptist came to Jesus asking if he was really the one. And Jesus answered them in Luke 7, 22-23, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. I'm sure you can catch the connection between the Isaiah 61 passage that Jesus read at the beginning of his earthly ministry and this report that was sent back to John the Baptist. Go and tell him, in my own words, that what I said at the beginning of my ministry regarding being the Messiah in fulfillment to Isaiah 61, it's happening. I'm actually doing these things. I'm even giving sight to the blind. He did this physically for some. We know that he does this spiritually for all who he calls to himself by his word and spirit. He opens their blind eyes, spiritually speaking. Lastly, Isaiah 61 says that the Messiah would proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The year of the Lord's favor is also called the year of Jubilee. According to the law of Moses, every 50 years was to be a year of Jubilee, wherein debts were forgiven and land that was lost would be returned to the original owner within Israel. And Christ proclaimed the year of the Lord's favor in a much greater way. He did not forgive earthly and temporal debts, but spiritual and eternal debts. For example, in Luke 7, 48, he looked at the sinful woman who expressed her faith in and love for Christ by anointing his feet with her own tears and with costly ointment and wiping his feet with her own hair. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. He canceled the debt that she had in respect to God. He forgave her sins. How good it would be to have all of your debts wiped away, monetary debts, but how greater it is to have your sins forgiven, to be made right with God, to have your sins washed away and your debt before God canceled. Indeed, Christ came to this woman and to many others and said, Your sins are forgiven. Blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven, against whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. So why have I taken the time to remind you of all these things that were said about Jesus at the time of His conception, His birth, and during His childhood? Why have I reminded you of the prophecy of Isaiah 61 concerning the Messiah, and of Christ's claim to be the Messiah, and of His many acts, His teachings and miracles, which demonstrated that He was the Messiah? Well, it is so that you would not lose sight of Luke's purpose and his method as we move methodically through the individual passages of Luke, Lord's Day by Lord's Day together. He wrote, So that we might have certainty that Jesus is the Messiah, the Redeemer of Israel. And He seeks to convince us by reminding us of what angels and and godly men and women in the the Scriptures themselves say about the Messiah, after which He reports on Jesus' words and works, so that we might see Him as God's Anointed One, the Savior of all who turn from their sins and look to Him by faith. Here in Luke 8, verses 40 through 48, we find yet another story which demonstrates that Jesus was and is the Messiah, the Anointed One of God, promised from long ago. In verse 40 we read, Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed Him, for they were all waiting for Him. 
That is to say, a large crowd was waiting for him to return from the land of the Gerasenes, and it's not difficult to imagine why, given all that Christ has done. Uh, They're eager to be in his presence again and to benefit from him. Verse 41, And there came a man named Yarius. I have a difficult time pronouncing this name. Uh, That's the best that I can do. Um, The name actually means Yahweh enlightens. What a beautiful name. And this man, we are told, was a ruler, a leader within the synagogue, that is, the Jewish church of the Old Covenant. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. So this is a very sad story, and we will return to this story regarding Yarius and his sick daughter in the future sermon. For now, I think it will suffice to draw attention to the misery that sin has brought into the world and of Christ's mission to reverse it. It is hard to imagine a more sorrowful situation than this. This man's only daughter was perishing at the young age of 12, and he did the right thing to come and to fall at the feet of Jesus and to implore him, as we will soon see. At the end of verse 42, we are introduced to a woman who had been tormented by illness for 12 years. There we read, as Jesus went, The people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for twelve years, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. Notice a few things about uh, this passage. First of all, notice the suffering of this woman. All suffering, as you know, is the result of sin. Had Adam obeyed God, there would be no sickness or death. But notice this also, not every instance of suffering is the result of some personal and specific sin. By this I mean the text in no way suggests that the woman suffered in this way because of some particular sin of hers. Perhaps she did, but the text does not say so, and we know that this is not always the case. Sometimes those who are living an upright life before God Uh, do suffer, but all suffering is the result of sin in general. The righteous do sometimes suffer, and though we are rarely given an answer to the question why, by faith we know that God is with His people in the midst of suffering to comfort them, to draw them into a closer dependence on Him, and to refine them. It should also be noted that this woman's suffering was not only physical, but spiritual, for this This unceasing discharge of blood would have made her unclean, according to the law of Moses. And you may go to Leviticus 15.25 and following to learn more about this. So this ailment was not only troubling her physically, but socially and, and religiously too. Second, notice her faith. She came to Jesus believing that He could heal her. The physicians could not solve the problem. The text says that though she had spent all of her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. I think it must be said that Christians are not wrong to consult physicians. Uh, We should remember that Luke was a physician himself. But Christians should be careful to not place all of their hope and trust in physicians, for they are mere men. They sometimes err. They do not have within themselves the ability to heal or to save from death. But notice, Christ does. And so we should imitate this woman and run to Christ in prayer, petitioning Him for healing. 
We should also remember that some ailments may be the result of sin. Not all are, but some may be. And Paul speaks about this in 1 Corinthians 11, 29-31. And so we must turn from sin and come to Christ. In a worthy manner we must approach the Lord's table, Lord's Day after Lord's Day, lest we be judged. That is what the 1 Corinthians 11 passage is about. And I am thoroughly convinced, brothers and sisters, that there is an intimate relationship between the soul and the body. Those who are plagued by soul illnesses such as fear and worry and bitterness, resentment, anger and unforgiveness, really should not be surprised when the the body grows ill too. And so I would encourage you to run to Jesus for healing. And as I do, I mean that we are to run to Him by faith and in prayer, having turned from known sin, including the sins of the mind and the heart. Whether or not Jesus will heal you physically, I do not know. We should remember that Paul himself pleaded with God to remove some thorn in the flesh. We don't know what this was exactly. Uh, Many have believed that it was some sort of physical ailment, uh, some physical ailment that plagued him. And he did plead with God, as I have said, to remove this ailment. But the response he received from the Lord was no. My grace is sufficient for you, the Lord said to him. My power is made perfect in weakness. And so Paul said, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Here I am simply drawing your attention to the faith of this woman. She was ill, and she was ceremonially unclean. She did the right thing to come to Jesus and to touch the hem of His robe, knowing for certain that He had the power to heal her infirmity. Thirdly, notice her secretiveness. This woman did not address Jesus directly, but touched the fringe of His garment secretly. Perhaps she was ashamed of her uncleanness. Perhaps she was simply shy. The text does not say. But what is clear is that Jesus would not allow the secretiveness to remain. In verse 45, we learn that Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? And when all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surrounding you and pressing, are, are pressing in on you. Uh, in other words, everyone's touching you, uh, Jesus. You're, you're being touched by so many. Uh, but Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. In Luke 5.17, we were told that the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal. And in Luke 6.19, we were told that all the crowds sought to touch Him, for power came out from Him and healed them all. And here in our text for today, we are told that many touched Him, but that power came out from Him to heal this one particular woman who came to Him by faith, and He perceived that power went out from Him. When He asked who touched Him, all denied it at first, but when the woman perceived that she could not hide any longer, she came trembling to Jesus and falling down before Him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched Him and how she had been immediately healed. Of course, the meaning of this is not that we must be open with everyone concerning all of our physical ailments. Uh, Privacy is a good thing to maintain in some situations, uh, brothers and sisters. But what it does mean is that we must not be private concerning our faith in Jesus and concerning the marvelous things He has done for us. We are to confess our faith in Jesus before men, and we ought to be happy to testify concerning the marvelous things He has done for us. 
Look at how tender Jesus was towards this woman after she finally acknowledged that she was the one who touched him by faith. Verse 48, And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. He spoke to this woman of faith tenderly, calling her daughter. He spoke to this woman of faith tenderly, calling her daughter. And perhaps we are to make a connection between the love of Yarius that he had for his 12-year-old daughter who was perishing and the love that Christ has for his people. In this instance, this woman who had been plagued by this physical ailment for 12 long years. Christ called her daughter so that we might know the tender love that he has for all who come to him by faith. And he said to her, your faith has made you well. Here, faith means trust. It should be clear to all that her faith was in Jesus. And then Christ said, go in peace. And that is what Christ gives to all who come to him by faith. He gives us peace with God, which translates to peace within the heart. This woman was unclean because of her ailment and separated from God's presence ceremonially and symbolically speaking. But Christ healed her. He removed her impurity and thus reconciled her to God. That was the highest blessing for this woman. Not the physical relief, but the spiritual. And so he declared peace upon her to remind her of this highest blessing. That is to say, peace with God. And so Christ spoke using familial language. Again, hear it. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. I'd like to begin to move this sermon towards a conclusion by making a few remarks about physical healing that might be on your... These are answers to questions, perhaps, that are on your mind. One, it must be acknowledged that Christ and His apostles were given the, the ability to heal. You can just pick up the New Testament Scriptures and read, and you will quickly see the gift of healing often mentioned. It would be a mistake to assume that Christians have the gift of healing today, though. For I want you to notice the purpose of the miracles that Christ performed. He healed the sick, cast out demons, and performed many other miracles to demonstrate that He was indeed the promised Messiah, who was long ago foretold in Isaiah 61 and in many other passages. The miracles and wonders that Christ performed were signs, that is in fact what they are called in the New Testament, that He truly was the long-awaited Messiah. And the same may be said concerning the apostles and other eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection. Many of them had the ability to heal as a sign that they were indeed Christ's special messengers, and that the word they spoke was true. It would be a mistake to assume that there were miracle workers in the church after the age of the apostles. Christ healed the apostles, had the gift of healing, and other eyewitnesses too. But it would be a mistake to assume that miracle workers such as these remain in the church after the age of the apostles. Two, having said this, It would also be a mistake to assume that God does not heal anymore. Do not hear me as if I am saying that. I believe that He certainly does. But He heals not through the hands of those with the gift of healing, as He did in the apostolic age, but through the common prayers of His people. 
James 5, 13 through 16 is important. It says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. One thing I've always noticed about that text is that those who are sick are not commanded to consult miracle workers or those with the gift of healing in the church. They're called to go to the elders of the church and have the elders of the church pray over them in a common way. Uh, This is the ongoing reality ever since uh, the apostles passed away. Though the miraculous sign gifts that were present in the early church have ceased, this does not mean that God does not work miracles. He may, if it is His will, and He will do so through the common prayers of His people. Three, as has already been mentioned, though God has the power to heal and to deliver His people from many hardships, this does not mean that He always will. In fact, Christians are warned to expect suffering in this life, and it may be the will of the Lord to allow some difficulty or ailment to remain so that we might draw near to God and learn the same lesson that Paul learned, that God's grace is sufficient and that His power is made perfect in weakness. 4. Given that Christ demonstrated He has the power to heal and even to raise people from the dead, and given the obvious fact that He does not do this for everyone, in fact, He does not do it for anyone ultimately now, it should be clear to all that the limited and temporary miracles that Christ performed at His first coming were meant to function as a sign that He possesses the power to do this for all who come to Him by faith perfectly and eternally at His second coming. I don't know if that statement was clear. It was a very long sentence, in fact. But do you understand what I'm here saying? Christ, in His earthly ministry, healed some. He did not heal all. He healed some. He gave sight to some who were blind. He healed some who were sick. He gave the gift of of movement to some who were lame, etc., etc. He did not do it for all. And, And even those who were touched by Jesus and healed of infirmities, even those who were raised from the dead, think of this. Those people grew ill again. Uh, Those who were raised from the dead had to endure the pains of death all over again for a second time. This healing that Jesus provided for people in His first coming, in His earthly ministry, was not ultimate. It was not eternal. But it was a sign of His ability to heal and to give life for all eternity. It was a demonstration that He had this power. That was the purpose of these momentary healings and these temporary resurrections. Uh, Besides being acts of kindness and compassion, they were a demonstration of Christ's power to to heal and to give life to all to come to Him by faith, perfectly and eternally. Have you ever thought of it that way before? Sometimes we suffer in this world. Christ may choose to heal some as an act of compassion, as an act of mercy. We don't understand His ways always. But we know He has the power to do this. And indeed, 
He will raise us up on the last day to life incorruptible. And in His first coming, He demonstrated to possess the power to do this very thing. Perhaps you have thought about this question when reading portions of Scripture like Psalm 103, which we read at the very beginning of this sermon. Hear it again. I will not read it in its entirety. It says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like eagles. What what are we to make of that? The Word of God says that that the Lord heals all of our diseases, and then we stand up and we go, but He has not healed all of my diseases. Does the Word of God lie then? Uh, It may be that some of God's people read passages of Scripture like this and think, but God has not healed me. Is the Word of God untrue? And the answer is certainly not. We simply need to learn how to interpret it properly. First of all, this psalm is not only about King David, it is about King Jesus. It is Christ whose life has been redeemed from the pit. It is Christ who has been raised up from the grave, His youth renewed like the eagles. Secondly, though some of these blessings are enjoyed by us now through faith in Jesus, He has forgiven our iniquities. He has crowned us with steadfast love and mercy. He has satisfied us with good. Not all of these blessings are ours now and in full, for we await the second coming of Christ and the consummation It is then then that all sickness and death will be eradicated for those who are united to Christ by faith. Thirdly, when Christ came the first time to accomplish our redemption, He did prove to have the power to do this. He proved through the miracles He performed to have the power to heal all our diseases. He proved by raising a few from the grave and by His own resurrection from the dead to have the power to to redeem our lives from the pit. These blessings that Christ has earned and has the power to bestow are ours now, but we do not yet enjoy the fullness of them. And so we wait patiently to obtain the fullness of the promise of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Would you bow with me for a word of prayer? Father in heaven, we thank you for your word We thank you in particular for this gospel that Luke wrote, uh, wherein he does record the things that took place so that we might be certain that Jesus is the Messiah. We thank you that Jesus demonstrated that he was the Messiah, not in talk only, but also in deed. Lord, I pray that you would help us to look to him, uh, to hear his words, to look to the deeds he performed, and to see uh, that he is the one who has the power to save. I pray, O God, that you would move us to turn from sin and to cling to him ever more tightly. Lord, our hope is in Christ. We long for the new heavens and new earth when death will be no more and neither will suffering be present. We long for that day. In the meantime, O Lord, I pray that you would help us to walk faithfully with you as we sojourn in this world, O Lord. I pray that we, like Paul, would confess that your grace is sufficient for us. I pray that we would see that your power is indeed made perfect in weakness. So help us to come and to live humble lives before you, trusting in you for all things. We pray these things in the precious name of Jesus and all of God's people say, Amen.